Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. In the future of work, artificial intelligence will take on the more repetitive and routine tasks. The work that will remain will be highly cognitive, creative, and intellectual. But how will we effectively do this type of work if we're burnt out, lonely, and feeling apathetic in our current workplaces? The key is a renewed focus on the qualities that make us uniquely human and elevating the human experience at work. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Amelia Dunlop. She's the Chief Experience Officer at Deloitte Digital and the leader of the U.S. Customer Service Strategy and Applied Design Practice for Deloitte Consulting. She's also the author of the national best-selling book, Elevating the Human Experience, Three Paths to Love and Worth at Work. Tell us about Amelia. Tell us your story, your journey. I want to hear about how you became passionate about elevating the human experience. All right, let's do it. So I guess I would start by saying um, I'm, you know, currently in this awesome role around um, chief experience officer for Deloitte Digital. And what that means is a couple of years ago, we set this aspiration to elevate the human experience. And I'll be totally honest with you, Jen, at the time, we didn't really know what that meant. But we knew that it was worth kind of putting a lot of effort into and building towards over time. And we also knew that there was something about focus on the human that just really made sense to us. And interestingly, this was even before uh, the pandemic. Yeah. And, and so for me, it's um, it's definitely been a journey. And uh, it has culminated uh, most recently in writing the book, Elevating the Human Experience, Three Paths to Love and Worth at Work. And I poured so much of myself into that book personally. Um, and uh, you know, very happy to kind of talk more about what that has meant in that journey and, and how to share it with your listeners. Absolutely. We will definitely get into that. But I want you to explain to us or tell us what you mean when you talk about the human experience and elevating the human experience. I think we hear those words a lot, but what does it really mean? Yeah, it's really about focusing on the fundamental human worth and investing in individuals and the teams that we get to be a part of in in our organizations to nurture their growth. Um, I think in short form, the way I think about elevating the human experience, it is that choice to make someone's experience better. Uh, And typically that requires starting with empathy. um, And then in the kind of context of work, using some of the tools around human-centered design to design experiences that make people feel just a little bit better. Was there an experience that you had that made you want to dive more into this or get deeper into making the experience better for others? Like what was that moment? (laughs) (laughs) Or was, or were there, or were there a series of them? (laughs) No, no, I'm laughing because you can't see me sort of smiling and kind of like uh, searching the reaches of my memory. But I don't know that I would say there's a singular aha moment that sort of said, Hey, this is, 
Um, this is the thing that is your passion. I would say that it is very clear to me now that my purpose is to help make, you know, the organization that I'm a part of the most human professional services firm in the world. And for me, that feels like a really worthwhile way to spend my day. And, um, and I think there's a, there's a number of different threads that I would say kind of get me there. So in my background, as you know, I, I studied sociology um, as, as an undergraduate. Um, I've also studied theology and moral theology. I've studied, uh, I have an MBA in business. And, and I've also been a dancer my whole life um, and trained professionally in dance. And I feel like you could argue that none of those things um, have anything much in common. But for me, they are all different aspects of you know, fundamentally the kind of the human experience and trying to understand whether it's through research and ethnographic research, um, what does it mean to, to be human through theology and philosophy and how do we, um, you know, you know, explore questions of meaning and purpose or just the physicality of movement and connecting to our bodies that we were never intended to, um, you know, spend our lives, you know, in two dimensional squares on a screen. <laughs> well, and I was gonna, I was gonna go there next. I mean, what, I guess, in a lot of ways, and perhaps, you know, this is just me speaking, but I, I certainly think others feel it because I've had these conversations that that some of our humanity has disappeared from the workplace because of, not because anyone intentionally or inherently said, oh, we're going to remove humanity from the mm-hmm. workplace. But right. can you talk a little bit about, you know, your view on that and what's going to get us from here to kind of bringing that humanity back or refocusing on the human experience in the workplace? No, totally. I mean, so I definitely believe that the sort of the fundamental sort of enduring human need is a need for connection. Um, and that's regardless of generation, regardless of specific social context. And to your point, there's a lot of uh, drivers that have created what I would call a human experience debt. And technology has both enabled so many things that we love, right? You and I get to have this conversation kind of remotely. Right. And technology has also made us feel a little bit less human at times. Um, and it is physically wearing on us, as we all know, to stare at a screen and to project our voices into a microphone in a different way than it is to um, to be face-to-face with another human being. So I do think that technology has both created um, some of the things we love, but also created some of this debt from what it means to be human. And so to your last part of your question, what's the way out? I do think there's just an being much more intentional about how can I elevate the experience for an individual with all their different intersecting identities in this moment or in this phone call or in this workshop or with this beautiful piece of technology I'm, I'm creating for the world. And so do you ever get pushback of like, wow, that's one more thing I have to think about or <laughs> one more thing I have to do or, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm coming to the, I'm coming to this, you know, from a place of, you know, I get a lot of this too from a well-being perspective. So how do we make this part of the kind of the core competency of the leaders of now and the future? Because there's such fatigue of, especially of leaders, but I think everybody. So how do we make it something that doesn't feel like it's just, another thing on our to-do list that we have to do? Yeah, it's a, it, it is a great question. Um, and it, it, there very well may be people thinking that, Jen, and and, uh, <laughs> and not telling me. But I think the response that I've gotten more is um, thank you. It's gratitude or it's sort of 
thank you because that's the type of organization I want to be a part of, or that's the kind of work I too want to bring out into the world, or thank you for um, making it discussable that this feeling that I have of disconnection, um, Mm. I didn't really know what words to put on it, right? You and I, we can talk about burnout. That's one of the manifestations, I think, of human experience debt. But there's also others, right? Whether it's feeling um, like you don't belong, feeling like lack of inclusion, and other other ways in which this this deficit is is felt. So I think there's there's a lot of people who are saying more, you know, acknowledging that this fundamental human need to uh, to feel human and feel kind of worthy is something we all share. I'm actually really glad to hear that that was your answer as opposed to more people <laughs> more people saying, "Oh, another thing I have to do." But I do. I think everybody is craving that, right? Because it has been removed from not just our work lives, but our our overall lives in in many ways. So, let's kind of flip this and say, how does the human experience or elevating the human experience, if you will, create greater creativity and innovation? And I know this is something you talk a lot about in the book. I think one of the things that I talk about is the idea that we do have to um, feel worthy at work. Uh, so I, I share some research where I, you know, we, we investigated sort of 6,000 uh, folks in the United States. And um, it didn't surprise me that nine out of 10 of them said that it mattered to feel worthy, but about half, um, myself included, at times struggle to feel worthy, particularly when we show up at work. Mm-hmm. And this matters because there's something about feeling worthy that that also uh, translates into the ability to kind of uh, take risks, um, kind of be creative, innovative, which is important uh, for the for the area of work that that I'm in. Um, and we all know that psychological safety is also very important for um, being able to produce um, the type of work that you can be really proud of. Yeah, absolutely. So you say that human values come down to four essential elements. Can you talk about those four elements? So one of the things we did in terms of the research was, you know, look at the ways in which um, we, we each have values which are, you know, not necessarily kind of good or bad, but that some of us feel more uh, compelled around the exploring of the new. There's more, there's those of us who are feel more sort of protective and, and the kind of safety um, is, is at more important. Um, and then on the flip side and, and kind of the X axis, we talk about the idea that there's those of us who feel that there's more about the the community, yeah. uh, the tribe, so to speak. Um, and then there's those of us who feel more compelled and, and a value of more personal, the kind of the me version and the kind of the, yeah. what we can accomplish. Uh, so I think of that as the, the me versus we access of values. And the reason that I talk about these, these four kind of cardinal values uh, in the book is acknowledging that as humans, we really can have different values. As organizations, we can have dominant values in our organization for our employees, and we can also have um, dominant values for our, for the kind of the people that we call customers. And it's just helpful to know what are, what is it that we're um, which values are we choosing to articulate at which point. Okay, so you know the 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 title of your book <laughs> has two words that you don't often see together, which I'm sure you've heard this before, love and work. <laughs> um, can you tell us what that's all about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yes, I, I, maybe I love my work, but the way you're talking about it is different. Yeah. Yeah, no, And I think I am intentionally trying to be um, provocative 
um, and talking about love and work. And I do say that it's risky to put those two words together in the same sentence, right? I get it. And there's reasons why it makes me uncomfortable. There's all kinds of reasons why I think it can make us uncomfortable. But I think I wanted to be provocative and offering a different definition of love than we might immediately call to mind. And here I go back to the Greek, um, which, you know, Jen, they have seven words for uh, love to our one in the English language, but they have the word uh, eudaimonia, which Mm. really means flourishing. Um, So I think the definition of love that I offer uh, in the book is really about the choice that we make to extend ourselves for either our own or for another's growth um, or flourishing. And then I think about like, okay, now if you kind of use that as a definition of love, you know, think about all the times where you spend an extra hour with someone uh, in the workplace to kind of just listen to them, right? Or you spend an extra hour with someone when you could have gone home and you're teaching them a new skill or you're coaching them. All of these words where we we could have, you know, we could talk about care, we could talk about respect. I think it's important to talk about love in the workplace because it is a fundamental human need. And so you refer to three paths to love and worth at work. And so what what are those three paths? Can you tell us a little bit more about each one of them? Yeah, sure. So the the three paths, uh, the first path is the path of the self. Um, and this is the very personal journey that we walk alone um, to uh, feeling loved and worthy in and of ourselves before we do anything, before we say anything, before we do any of the work uh, that, that is our chosen field. And I think the path of the self for me, Jen, was, a, was really important to, to discover because there's no amount of um, external affirmations that is ever going to make us feel as loved and worthy as we can feel uh, in and of ourselves. And I mean, I've, I definitely think of it as there's something about having that, that best friend who is your champion, your supporter, who speaks to you with kindness. And that best friend like actually lives inside your head. <laughs> um, and it's a pretty awesome way to live, to feel like you have that champion and that supporter and that, and that you are that person for yourself. So, you know, I can say more about the kind of how you kind of go on that journey for the first path, but that is the first path. And that that a lot of us have kind of work to do in just how we speak to ourselves and how we are that best friend. The second path is really the path of allyship to another, a single other person that we might find at work. They could be a colleague, um, they could be um, a boss, they could be someone who, who reports to us. And I think that second path is, as I said before, how we mirror back the worth to another who may or may not yet see it in themselves. Um, And so this is where I think about the types of allyship, where we can be a friend, we can be a a mentor, a sponsor, and a benefactor. And for me, it's just put much more clearly into focus the ways in which we can love um, a single other human being in the context of our work. And then the third path is acknowledging that there's many, many people that we're going to cross paths with at work and it may be very brief, right? It may be twice a year, it may be 15 minutes, it may be, you know, in a, in a quick uh, exchange in a kitchen someday. And this is much more about what are we doing both um, systemically to create spaces that people feel like they can show up with their whole selves and, and be authentic. And this is also about um, the challenge to say, how can we leave a person better off, no matter how brief that exchange? Uh, and that's that third path. And I recognize 
in each of those three paths, and I name and talk about these in the book, there are absolutely obstacles to going on this journey. And if there weren't, um, it wouldn't be We'd hard. Be doing it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so talk about some of those, like what are some of the more common obstacles to those paths or those experiences that we're going to have? So, I mean, for the individual, I think that one of the, the biggest obstacles is all the, um, the negative messaging and the negative programming we already have in our heads, right? And the fact that I don't know about you, but the, um, the inner critic uh, for me can be quite loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we tend to believe the voice in our head, even though it's qu- it can be quite negative, just because our voice sounds familiar to ourselves. We believe it; it's true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, I, that, that sounds familiar, therefore it must be true. And I do think that there's, uh, there's some reprogramming and, and uh, what it means to kind of overcome that obstacle uh, to ourself. And even, even I would acknowledge that talking about taking time to be kind to myself, to extend grace to myself, to love myself, it still sounds weird, right? Like that's not a common conversation in the workplace. So I think that in and of itself feels like it can be an obstacle. Then I would say in terms of obstacles to what does it mean to, to really recognize the worth in another and show them love, um, I talk about some of the obstacles in every, in every way in which human connections can break down, right? Geographic distance, miscommunication, intention or lack of intention. Is that text that wasn't returned, you know, uh, not returned for a reason or was it missed? Like there's so many different ways in which our, our ability to connect with another um, is broken. Um, and I, I talk about some of the ways that we can overcome that. So there's so many different obstacles we bring. Um, and the fact that we can be very loving uh, to another person, but we don't know what's going on in their own um, path for their self, right? right? And what, how are they able to actually show up? Um, which is something that I think about a lot when we, we bring our very personal, messy selves to the workplace, and we don't often acknowledge that there's that personal journey going on. And then, you know, the obstacles and, and uh, the, the broader community of work where there's sort of generational um, legacies of things that make it harder for certain people to show up at work. And one of the things I talk about is I think it's our job to actually dismantle and redesign the systems so that people do feel worthy at work. So, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to dig deeper um, about the worthiness gap. What is the definition of that? What is, you know, what is it? What does it feel like? (laughs) Um, You know, when, I mean, when and how do we experience it? You know, kind of all of those, those things. For sure. I think so just the definition of the worthiness gap is that gap between how much it matters to us to feel worthy and how many of us um, struggle to feel worthy. And I think that for me might be a better way of articulating what we talked about earlier in terms of the imposter syndrome is it, it has helped kind of give language to in this specific situation, I am feeling a worthiness gap. Um, and it may, it may have to do with my own kind of talk track in my head. It may have to do with what the individual on the opposite side of the desk has just shared with me. It may have to do with the kind of the broader organizational context. But for right now, I'm feeling a worthiness gap. And so I think it's just a way of um, expressing it and kind of helping deconstruct the different uh, drivers of what that might mm-hmm. mean. And then hopefully uh, giving the individual some tools to be able to close that worthiness gap. What are some examples of you know, either in your own life or things that you've helped others with? Like what can, what can I do um, <laughs> as a, 
you know, as an individual, what can I do as a leader or a manager of people? Like what, take me on that journey. For sure. So let's talk about um, what we can do for ourselves first, and then let's talk about what we can do for others. So just to to break it down a little bit, one of the things I I share the story in the book. So I had just received some, some pretty challenging feedback and it's kind of question of like, how do you internalize it? How do you process it? And it was in speaking with, you know, a good friend and dear colleague that helped me to reframe some of this feedback. And we all get challenging feedback. And she said, you know, Amelia, that um, in order to continue to grow professionally, you're going to need to grow personally and kind of grow in vulnerability. And I remember feeling like, well, wait a second, like, I'm feeling pretty vulnerable right now. So no, thank you. (laughs) Um, No desire to feel more vulnerable than I do right now. Um, but she pushed, you know, she persisted as she does. And she said, you know, to show up with kind of equal parts, head and heart really will sort of unlock sort of your full power. And so she gave me this exercise and she said, I, Amelia, I want you to write down the 30 reasons why you're lovable. And I might, you know, for someone who feels or um, unworthy, who, for someone who struggles to feel loved, that was a really hard exercise. And at first I tried to do the, like, well, could I get my, my, my 10 year old daughter to do it for me? Or could I get someone else to kind of, she's like, nope, I believe in you and I want you to write it. And I still have the list uh, on, on the notes on my phone, but my list starts with, I am lovable because I have a warm smile. And I share this story, Jen, because knowing and being able to articulate the reasons why we are worthy before we do anything, the reasons why we are lovable actually does change kind of how I feel like I can show up at work, right? That's that equal parts head and heart. That's that personal growth and professional growth. And I've also observed that I've, I've now asked this question to many, many groups and many, many people and how quickly we jump to, well, I'm lovable because I'm a kind friend or I'm lovable because I'm a good parent. And I try to remind people that we are lovable before we do anything, Mm. Um, and that it's hard. It's one of those like, oh, you're right. Yes, you're right. It's before I am a good friend. It's before I'm a good listener. It's before I do anything for anybody else. So I feel like that's you know one thing I would encourage people to do is, can you write down the 30 reasons why you are lovable? Um, so that's the first, right? Really learning to, to speak uh, to ourselves um, with kind of words of kindness and love. And then in terms of what does it mean to, to um, put this into action for others, and we talked about this before, but I do think um, allyship is something that's so critical. And I've come to believe that um, we can be good leaders if we are, you know, good friends and kind of good mentors and offering words of wisdom. But I don't think we can be great as leaders unless we're truly investing in sponsoring others and being benefactors, using our own, whether it's positional power or informal power to lift other people up. Uh, who may or may not have opportunities that we had. And so I think there's a much more active discipline to to allyship than I had ever thought previously. Um, and I think it's important going forward. What do you tell organizations in terms of like how do you how do you shift culture or I guess mindset and behaviors to think this way? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I feel like if I had the short answer to that question, um, no, no, I mean, but I think I, I get what you're asking. It's like, well, how do we do this, right? And how yeah. do we do this at scale? And I think 
from from the the perspective that I've come at it, it's like I do a lot of work in customer experience and in strategy and in, and in innovation. And I think there's there's definitely people who do the yeah I get it like we want to focus on the customer experience or the employee experience. But hey Amelia, what you're talking about now, the human experience, like that sounds really hard. Like I want it, but that sounds really hard. How do I do it? And I think I would first acknowledge that this is a journey, right? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't believe I have any of the all the answers. I don't know that anybody else does either. But I would say to the extent that I've been walking on this path. I feel like um, one of the things that we need to be doing um, a better job of is, is heavier doses of empathy for what other people's lived experiences are. And I do think the f- I learned a lot in writing this book that you don't elevate anyone's human experience generally or generically. Right. That it is about acknowledging people's individual lived experience and their intersecting identities which I can't possibly have all of them, right? I just don't. <laughs> and so I think part of what we can ask people to do is start to be more curious about other people's lived experiences and extend more empathy. So I also, I talk about speed to empathy um, and how we can get faster at expressing uh, that empathy. And then I think very practically, Jen, there are some tools, right? There are some very specific things you can do in the workplace um, to help people feel like they can, like they belong, right? That they are included um, and that they're um, free to bring their authentic whole selves to work. Um, and I think these tools have a lot to do with what we're learning around um, equity-based uh, human-centered design mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the kind of the techniques where, um, you know, we talked about words matter, inviting people into those spaces and making them feel safe. And And when you talk about you know, more empathy and kind of, you know, speed to empathy. I mean, what, give me some examples of, of what that looks like or what a person can do or a leader can do, an individual can do. So I think a lot about, for me, I need, I need to exercise speed to empathy. Um, and I'll just, you know, I'll give you like any random example, right. That I, um, I sort of disguised and put in the book, but it's the, you know, it's the the person that you're dealing with at work. So I'd say call to mind the person that is really most annoying to you. They just make, you know, things just a little bit more challenging for you. And for me, the speed to empathy is acknowledging that this person is as much, you know, in this case, maybe, you know, a father, um, a son, a brother, a spouse. This person has their own life narrative. They have their own journey, their own pain. They may, they too actually might be operating out of a worthiness gap. Hmm. They may, um, without knowing it, be acting in ways that, um, you know, is sort of um, aggressive or, you know, may seem, um, you know, a little bit uh, lower empathy, but I don't know what's going on uh, in their personal narrative. And I think speed to empathy, you know, I might just want to be, you know, angry and shoot back, you know, a slightly snarky email. (laughs) I might want because we've all done it. (laughs) You know, hypothetically, might send back a snarky email, or I could acknowledge, you know, what I have no idea what's going on in your day. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I should pick up the phone and, um, you know, really try to understand you as a human, um, not just the transactional, you know, work object we were trying to accomplish together. And are there, um, so, so let's play this out. So you pick up the phone, you call this person. What, what does mean? Like, what does that look like? Cause I feel like sometimes we struggle, especially with people that, 
you know, annoy us, right? Or bother. I mean, like, what, what do, what do I call you up and say in order to to bridge totally. that? Gap? Okay. So the, the thing that I'm laughing at, Jen, is you know, I've obviously I've written this book about it. it. This book holds me accountable, right? Because I believe these things to be true. That doesn't mean I can 100% always live them. First of all, I, look, I, I get that. I'm I'm the chief well-being officer. Do you think every single thing I do is healthy? Not a chance. <laughs> I just feel like I needed to make that disclaimer, right? Like this is something where I this book holds me to account, right? Yeah, and I feel yeah. like this book challenges me every day because people have told me that that it's challenging to them. It's like, yeah. yep, it challenges me too. But what I would say that the, my go-to in that situation is so. Let's say Jen, you and I, you know, had a, a you know one of those interactions. You're like, yeah, that didn't feel great. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. We kind of ruffled each other's feathers. Um, I would call you up and say, hey, Jen, that didn't feel great. Could we have a do-over? Mm. And I've done that. Um, you know, at least a half a dozen times this past year. And I will tell you that it, it, it releases some of the tension. It acknowledges like, wow, like, yeah, it really didn't feel great. Um, and because I value you as, as a person, as a human, I think we could, I think we can try that one again. And I think we can do a better job. We can be a little bit gentler with each other. Um, we can maybe explain a little bit more of what our backstory was coming into that conversation that, you know, was maybe an unspoken, but um, acted out of. And it just gives some more space to to redo a conversation. And the do-over, it's simple because, because you know how like, otherwise it's like the long-winded, like, can we just like hash out, you said this, and then I said that, and no, I thought this, and then you said this. It's like, I don't want to do any of that. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's just acknowledge I was not my best self in that conversation. No, and maybe you weren't either. And that's actually okay. So we're going to do this one again and try to show up with our better selves. Well, and you mentioned psychological safety earlier. And I think that that is such an incredible way to create psychological safety with someone to pick up the phone and be like, hey, you know what? I just <laughs> didn't feel good. We need a do over. And it makes it okay. You know, it it's, makes it okay that if it happens again, it's okay, right? Like we we can we can talk through this as you know, to adults and to professionals or to people, to humans. Um, and that's part of being human. I love that. So um, I mean, one of my favorite ones, I'm smiling. One of my favorite I'm going to be using that. I ha- I've yeah. never used it before, but now I'm going to be using it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I sort of smile with a bit of chagrin because I mean, I had to use, I had to use the do-over um, in like in the last two months. Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is not necessarily a thing that um, you know, we become so good at that we never need it. So I've, I think the do-over is helpful. I mean, the other thing that I, I love is I've had do-overs with entire teams. We're like, okay, the meeting we had on Monday, we're going to do that one again. <laughs> and we're all going to show up. It's as though this meeting is like from scratch. <laughs> I, I can think of the I, I can think a few of those where I needed to do do over. So thank you for permission to do that, Amelia. I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> Good. No, I love. I love it. So, are there any other? Um, I mean, I, I I fully enjoyed this conversation. There's so many nuggets of wisdom. Are there are there any other things that you want to talk about? Any other practices, maybe personally, that leave us with some words of wisdom? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think one of the other things that has changed for me is, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but I am much more conscious about trying to be deliberate in playing back others' worth mm-hmm. and helping others in their own journey, right? Because recognizing we're all on a journey. And one of the ones that I feel like I've used quite a lot recently, Jen, so it's probably worth talking about, 
is as people are trying to figure out, you know, in this great resignation or the great reevaluation, whatever term you prefer, I've often thought about what does it mean to have this personal value equation for what we truly most want um, out of our workplaces. And the reason I say it's personal, because it varies for each of us, you know, there may be common categories, right? There's some amount of compensation that matters. There's some amount of type of work that matters. There's some amount of location and travel. There's some amount of benefits. There's some amount of prestige and, and role. But they actually do vary by individual and they vary by life stage, right? So as we move through our careers, that what we most need from our work and uh, that personal value equation will shift. And I think I wanted to share that because I feel like it can help people um, both articulate to their, you know, the people around them, um, hey, this is my intention. This is what's really valuable to me from a, from a work expe- um, perspective. And it, and it kind of creates a different kind of dialogue with your, with your mentors and your colleagues. Um, and I think it also helps acknowledge where like if your personal value equation is not being met, right, and you feel like you're undervalued from your role, from your, um, the, the type of opportunities you're getting, it also helps make that discussable. So I've, I've had lots of conversations with people very recently as they're considering, you know, work shifting in roles, shifting in jobs. And I would say you are worth um, taking the time to think through your personal value equation and trying to figure out how you're going to maximize that and, um, and being in dialogue with people in your workplace to help you on that journey. I, I love that. And I can't think of a better way to end this discussion. So thank you, Amelia, for spending time with us today and for giving us lots to think about and, and actions that we can take as well. Thanks so much, John. It was super fun. I'm so grateful Amelia could be with us today to talk about love and worth at work. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.